Hello, and welcome to the Signature Leadership Series podcast by Knowledge Hook, a podcast where we explore the topics most relevant to senior education leaders from around the world. I'm your host, Jennifer Adams. I'm a former superintendent of a large, highly diverse, publicly funded school district in Ottawa, Canada. I was really fortunate throughout my career to have many great opportunities for professional learning, and I'd like to extend that opportunity to you. Working together with Knowledge Hook, a Canadian digital math company, we are continuing to support thought leadership in education. Today's podcast is an opportunity to hear from one of my favorite child psychiatrists, Dr. Jean Clinton, who's helping to forge the link between well-being and learning. In her book, Love Builds Brains, Dr. Jean shares her insights from the perspective of a parent and grandparent, as well as from her clinical and academic point of view. That's just who Dr. Jean is. All of us can relate to her stories and can learn from her advice on how to improve our classrooms, our schools, and our school systems. Dr. Jean, welcome today. Hi, Jen. I'm really thrilled to be here with you. Jean, I'm really excited to be able to say to our listeners that you have a brand new book out, and I absolutely love the title. The title, of course, is Love Builds Brains. And tell me where that title comes from. Ah, yes. yeah. Well, do you know, it's interesting because it has both a heartwarming aspect to it, you know, that love builds brains. And so you can imagine just swaddling our kids with love. But the other part is that relationships are the ingredients of brain development. And so quite literally, when our students, our own children are surrounded by love, the brain cells, uh, they're called neurons, actually get activated. And the more repetitive and warm and nurturing and predictable, then we are quite literally building the brain with that architecture being built on the structure of love. Jean, it's so cool. And I think that you do such a good job when you would speak in front of teachers and principals and early childhood educators in the school district that I was from. You had such a great way of mixing a very personal approach, talking to us as parents and as educators, but as well that scientific approach. And I think that's one of the things that the readers, when they read your book, and I certainly uh, recommend that they do, will really appreciate it. It's very approachable because you are such a good storyteller. Even in your introduction, you talk about your experiences as a parent and as a grandparent, which many of us can relate to, but also as a clinical psychiatrist. How does this help your readers? How does that help them engage? Well, do you know, I think that we as a social species have a wired in response to story. You know, what we have learned, how we've survived as a species throughout these thousands of years, um, really has been the storytelling, the passing down of the tales, of the warnings, of the excitement of experiences. And so I think we're naturally wired to respond to story. And then for me, I consider myself a knowledge translator. So that's taking the science and making it as accessible as possible. And when I learned about the brain science specifically, it really changed my practice. 
So I've been able to weave in story as I observe and remember my own kids and my grandchildren, thinking about, well, what's actually happening in those marvelous little brains? And I've got lots of stories, particularly when you know, I think about the adolescent brain. I have a chapter in the book on that. And, you know, I joke when I'm presenting saying I know much more about the adolescent brain than I ever wanted to know through experience with my kids. I think that's one of the things that the readers will appreciate because you talk about you're a mother of five beautiful children and uh, have had such an important career at the same time. And of course, now you're a grandmother. And I think that that really helps with the relatability that everyone can relate to those stories. And it helps kind of bring them into the science that you're talking about. And the science that you're talking about are things that as lay people, we don't know those things. But boy, as educators, to have someone provide that translation for us in a way that gives us bite-sized pieces of information that can actually impact the way that we're working with children and adolescents in schools, it's really so helpful. Well, you know, Jen, one of the things that my dad said, and I say this in the opening, my dad, who was an educator himself, he was actually interviewed in Scotland when we had a teacher shortage here in Hamilton, Ontario. And so he came in 1965 and he told me how blessed I was that my career and my hobby, my love is the same thing. And that is children, you know, from as young as 12, 13, I was a camp counselor and absolutely loved it with, you know, the CYO camps here in uh, Hamilton. So being with kids is in my DNA as it were. And so it's natural for me to be thinking really along as I, you know, as I observe my kids and the babies, I wonder, well, what's actually going on and how would I tell this story to others so that they can be as amazed at what's going on in that wonderful brain as kids are growing? Some of the really very direct advice that you have given to us as educators, I've actually seen those things happen based on those bite-sized pieces that educators can understand because the way that you present it to them, I've actually seen, or you know, when going into schools, heard principals talk about how that advice is changing what's happening in our classrooms. So it's hugely helpful, and I certainly thank you for that. So I've got my clinical experience, but I also have my life and with my children experience. So there are bite-sized things that I've seen and, uh, you know, bitten in different anatomical locations because my kids are very different. So I understand the gifted child, but I also understand the child with ADHD and LD and who turns to substance to make it through. So it's very real. I think that's the reality of being a mother of five. I come from a, a family of six. I only have two children myself, but I come from a family of six. And when you have a large family like that, you see similarities across the siblings, but you also see the very distinct differences. And uh, that's what makes motherhood and parenthood challenging, but so rewarding as well. You know, one of the things that we know, and I think uh, education is doing a much better job of talking about well-being. You know, we used to, so much of our discourse was talking about learning up until maybe a, a decade ago, and we really turned our eyes towards how well-being and learning is interconnected and related. And we know that when children have experiences at home and when children have experiences at school, that those impact the children. 
Obviously, in the last few months, there's been a huge disruption to the way children are learning. Can you tell us some of what you're hearing out in the field as far as the impact on students with this disruption to learning? I think it's really fascinating how the fact that we need to be thinking about each child as an individual. And I think we're seeing that writ large in what's happening through COVID-19 because we're seeing uh, teachers' comments about kids saying the kids who didn't participate much in school before are really engaging in this form of learning, this distance learning. And you go, aha, aha, what does that help us learn, think about how engaged were they before? And then there are other children who just are not engaging whatsoever. What I've learned is, and I spent a lot of time in the early years, what I've learned is the teachers who had a philosophy of I'm here to support the development of the whole child, so my relationship with children really counts, have had more success in thinking about and connecting with students because they're not driven by, oh, we have to fill the gap up, we have to catch them up but they're much more driven by how can we connect and keep this love of learning going rather than, as I talk about, rather than stuff the duck and just fill them up with these worksheets. So I think we see the huge range. And there's a great paper that you know called uh, Education Reimagined that uh, Michael Fullen and the team with Microsoft have put out, which I think is a wonderful resource for educational leaders. So those concepts of relationships and loving learning and those basic foundational pieces are going to continue to be so important in our everyday lives. Yeah, in fact, I think that they have to be the priority in the return to school, that students are going to be coming back with uncertainty, their parents are going to have huge uncertainty. And, you know, what we know about the brain is it doesn't like uncertainty very much. So you're going to see kids and teachers and staff who are very, very apprehensive. And so that means a driving priority for the first period of time has to be creating a sense of belonging, a sense of safety, a sense that you're welcome here, you're valued here, we are going to get through this together. And that has to be the primary drive. You know, I was joking with a group of uh, kindergarten teachers recently on a call as we're setting up a webinar saying that there should be the equivalent of a swear jar. That anytime somebody says we have to catch them up or we have to close the gap in the first month or so of school, they have to put a tuning in that jar because truly the kids have been through so much. The teachers have been, the educators have been through so much that it is all about creating that sense that this is safe. It really is about Maslow before bloom. That is such good advice. And I'm sure educators will be thinking about that as they head back into schools or into uh, continued hybrid learning styles. That's helpful, Jean. Thank you. Jen, just before we move on, I think what educators have learned is that you absolutely can make a, a significant connection virtually with your students. Yeah, absolutely can. And in fact, my uh, sister-in-law is a speech and language pathologist. They're doing virtual. So imagine trying to do virtual speech and language pathology with intervention with a two-year-old. Well, you absolutely can if you're flexible and nimble. So my sister-in-law did it. The little one ran away into the closet. So she said, go to the closet 
and they had a great game and play. So thinking about, I can do this, if I can reach and be authentic in my relationship and reach out to kids, then I can be the educator that they need. That's a really hopeful statement for teachers, and I'm sure that they will appreciate that advice for sure. In the book, Jean, you talk about being an upstreamist and a brain geek, and I had a giggle after that one. What is an upstreamist? Well, an upstreamist is somebody like you, Jen, and that is somebody that my experience with it is that it's about thinking not about being stuck in the middle of a stream trying to catch kids with, for me, with mental health issues as they're zooming by and I can never reach them all, to going up to the top of the stream, the river, and see why are they falling in in the first place. So as I think of the marvelous work that you're doing in math education, you are such an upstreamist as well. You're thinking about not how do you correct kids who can't manage it or educators, but what are the conditions to leading to excellence and understanding? So I'm an upstreamist because I think that public education is an absolute gem for us to be creating civic society and uh, citizens who are going to care about others and know themselves well and thus be kind. It's such a pleasure to hear you talk about public education because that's one of the things, you know, when we look across Canada, that's one of the things that Canada can be really proud of, that when you look at the equity outcomes for students, it's based on the fact that, you know, 95% of students are in publicly funded education and so they're getting the kinds of resources that they need to have and uh, we're responsible to make sure that those students that need more support they have that support and the same for the teachers. So it's great to hear you. It's all of us are in this together for us to have children coming out with good outcomes. Teachers have to be thinking that way. Policy people have to be thinking that way. Our psychiatrists and our health officials have to be seeing that way. We have to all have a positive sense of what can we do to have the best outcome possible for all of our learners. Yeah. But you know, Jen, one of the things that I'm learning about thinking about equity is that We have to start first with where the child is, what they and their world experience are bringing to the education system. You know, we've got what Loris Malaguzzi from Reggio Emilia would say, we've got certain languages of childhood that we privilege, like literacy and numeracy. And when we think about some of the children who come from distressed backgrounds or situations, They may not have those languages, but are we valuing the other languages of life that they have learned? You know, I think of the Indigenous children who have come from a hugely rich history and experience, and yet they come in and is that valued? Are we exploring or are we saying, why are you not and where are you not like other children? And we have to catch you up rather than saying, what are the gifts that you are bringing here that I can learn about and then can help? build and use in my own education about how you learn rather than thinking about stuffing the duck of here's the curriculum, here are these things that we need to get you in to be the person we think you need to be. Jean, you're kind of entering into a question that I had and that's the connection between love and the brain. You talk about that connection between well-being and love, the connection between love and the brain. What is neuroscience saying about that connection? Well, what we are understanding is that, first of all, well-being 
is about more than the absence of illness. So well-being is a robust engagement to reach your potential, to have a balance between your physical, spiritual, emotional, and social. So well-being is this rounded aspect of life. And what we know is when you are experiencing well-being, what you're releasing in your brain in terms of neurotransmitters are reward neurotransmitters like dopamine and serotonin. So when you are experiencing the pleasure of learning, your brain patterns are very different than when you are in a highly stressed situation. When we think about the emotional part of the brain, the limbic system, the fight or flight system, if in the learning environment, you are predominantly in the fight or flight system, we know that that brain, that limbic brain, that emotional brain is in the driver's seat. And so you just cannot access your thinking brain. So when we think about well-being, we have to be thinking about the whole child. We have to also be thinking about the emotions involved in learning. You know, the whole field of affective neuroscience. Mary Helen Imardino Yang is one of the young, bright stars in this area. But, you know, Antonio Damasio has been talking about this for a very long time. And that we don't learn anything significant unless we have an emotional connection to it. And so you see the link between emotions and having the understanding that the emotional environment in the classroom is playing a role. And so when there is that positive emotion in the classroom, then you absolutely have the conditions for fabulous connection and learning. But if it is the teachers creating the weather in the classroom, then that emotional temperature may be very, very different, which is going to affect the neurotransmission, which is going to affect the ability of the brain to learn, and consequently is going to affect that sense of well-being. You have a great way of kind of creating little mantras that those of us that are in schools or even at home as a parent can remember easily. And one of the ones that you say in the book is, I should connect before I correct this child. Tell us what that means. Uh, this is uh, from long experience, shall we say, Jen, <laughs> as, as well as uh, from a neuroscience perspective. If we can connect at the neuroscience level. Um, uh, the work of Alan Shore and Dan Siegel have taught us that from infancy, we are a social species. And in order for us to learn how to manage our emotion, our behavior, and our actions, we need to be co-regulated by the other. So, you know, a little baby, as they're smiling and gooing at their parent, their right brain is connecting with the parent's right brain. And that energetic connection that Dan Siegel talks about is quite literally not only building their brain, but helping them to learn that this is a safe place for me. I can have these intense emotions and they are co-reg, they are managed. I can do okay with it. So that is co-regulation, and that is at the heart of the development of self-regulation. So if you really want to have a child who is, has challenging behaviors, if you really want to see change in that, what you first do is put yourself in the child's shoes and figure out, what does this behavior mean to this little one? Every behavior has a reason. So you connect, first of all. 
you connect first of all. And then once you've connected, you can understand what's going on. And as my friend Stuart Shanker says, very often that what you're perceiving as misbehavior is actually stress behavior. There's something in the environment that is alerting the child to say, I don't feel comfortable here. There's something going on. It's too noisy or I'm hungry or those kids are looking at me and I think they're laughing at me. You know, so there's all these stress behaviors that we just see the outside as misbehavior. So that's why it's so important to be this kind of stress detective and connect before correct. And my friend Susan Hopkins says that we have to look at children through soft eyes, which I think is a lovely way to think of this. And the neuroscience of soft eyes is when a child sees you with soft eyes, with kindness in your eyes, there's actually a physiological change that happens in the brain. That's great advice. Uh, I have a 17-year-old son, and I'm going to try to be thinking about those kind words <laughs> as, as I approach with him. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Remember, he is under construction and one of the chapters in the book on the adolescent brain really talks about adolescence and that goes from like 9, 10 to 25, 26. It's a big long period of time in uh, Western <laughs> society. They really are under construction. The neuroscientific uh, studies are showing that their brains, uh, even though they look like adults, they're not full adults yet. They're not, nor are they many adults. Their emotional brain is developing ahead of their executive director brain. So you never ask an adolescent, what were you thinking? Because their emotion, particularly in hot emotion situations, is in the driver's seat. So as parents, what I say is we need to be with them. We need to be with them. We need to connect before we correct. And that way you can have the conversations in the non-heated moments. One way of looking at it is uh, they're a work in progress. Absolutely, and, uh, under construction. Yeah. We have a responsibility to help with that progress. That's a great way of looking at it. We do. We absolutely do. And instead of thinking about, um, you know, I'm locking you out because you're not um, meeting um, a curfew, you sit and have a conversation about what is it about curfew that's so challenging for you. It doesn't mean that you're a big softy. You've got your expectations, but you have a dialogue about what is it that is meaningful that we both get to yes. Both get to yes. That is a hopeful stance and uh, a wonderful way of looking at things. Jean, in the book, there's a chapter that talks about resilience and recovery. What can educators do to help more students have positive outcomes when they are faced with challenges or adversity, either towards their learning or in their social worlds? Oh, I love that question, Jen. So the number one thing that teachers can do is be a caring adult with high expectations and provide support. That is one of a resilience. It's not a gene. It's not magic. It is the ability to be able to, when you're in a tough spot or when something bad is happening, the resilience is about being able to get yourself, so to navigate yourself to resources, something, somebody that can help you, that you can actually use. So that's resilience. And so what does that mean in an educational setting? Well, that means human beings who care. 
It means significant adults who have high expectations and want to help you grow. You know, one of the striking stories I heard of a, a young fellow in the court system when the judge asked him, you know, don't you worry that you're going to disappoint your parents? And he said, you know, my parents don't even care enough about me to have any expectations for me. So, wow. So that is so important. So who we are, who we bring to the classroom, how we want to support those young people is such a huge factor in building their resilience. So listening to them, helping them with their direction, all of those things that the Search Institute talks about in terms of developmental relationships are so very, very important. What are some warning signals that we should be watching as educators, you know, especially during this time where there's been so much disruption, even moving forward, many educators, many teachers will be continuing to connect with students online or in a very different format. Classrooms will look different as children come in where schools are actually opening for physical presence in the schools. What should we be watching for? And is there a difference between what we'd be looking for in a kindergarten student versus a a high school student? So I think what educators need to be looking for is a sense of distress. And they will be very different in a kindergarten to a high school. So you have to be thinking developmentally. So the kindergarten student who won't engage, you know, so maybe they're in their second year and previously they were engaged and now they're not engaging. You can't entice them into even things that you know that they used to love. So the child who is more distant than they were before, but also the child who is more clingy, who, you know, they're, they're stuck to your leg, they're crying all the time, they're distressed, they're irritable. They are all warning signs. The behavior is the tip of the iceberg of what's going on underneath and every behavior has a reason. And the high school students, you're likely more likely to see disengagement. And how do you know the difference between adolescent disengagement and um, uh, which can be very normal and something that's more significant? Well, it really has to be explored in the context of are they enjoying things? So when we look in psychiatry, we look at the behavior to see Is it interfering with the tasks that are typical for their developmental stage? So in adolescence, are they making friends? Are they socializing in appropriate ways? Are they engaging with the community? So these would be the kind of questions I would be asking in this psychiatric interview, how we go down the pipe and say, well, what does that look like in the classroom? You'll see the intense disengagement. And if you ask them about what are they doing that they're enjoying these days or what did they do during COVID? And they say, well, nothing. You know, life kind of sucks. There isn't anything that I'm enjoying anymore. And I think teachers should be free to ask those kind of questions. That's when you start to get worried. And, you know, I point people to, I know you have a broad-based audience, but there's tremendous work going on here in Ontario with School Mental Health Ontario, smho.ca, with uh, really wonderful resources that can help educators look at this. And people are really, really trying to tease all of this out. 
Some of the things that you were mentioning there, Jean, it really heightens the need for good communication amongst educators so that, you know, in the kindergarten rooms, if there's the joy of having both early childhood educators and teachers sharing in that teaching and learning environment, to be able to reconnect with people that have worked with that child before. And that kind of communication will be a little bit more challenging But we know after the last few months that if you're not available to be doing it face-to-face, those kinds of conversations can and need to be facilitated online. Absolutely. I think in the new world that we have to see parents, the role of parents in the education of the children in quite a different way. And so the parents are essential for a hybrid model of education. And so we need to be really, I think, reevaluating and reimagining an education where more adults, more parents are engaged in their students' learning. So it is reaching out to the parent as well. Now, in adolescence, you know, they're not going to be that keen on um, parents coming in and being involved, but it doesn't mean to say that the teacher can't have a relationship. Right. And it doesn't mean that other significant adults in the young person's life can't contribute because they may be reaching out to them. And that is an opportunity, right? We know that parents have really taken on a pretty heavy load over the last few months, particularly parents with younger children who are really helping guide that learning. And they may be more in a position where they can or feel comfortable sharing what they're seeing at home with what is happening in the classroom or in that virtual learning. And that might be something that we need to get better as an education system. How do we connect with parents on their child's learning? How do we bring them into the learning environment? And there may be some really interesting lessons that we've learned over the last few months because we've been forced into a new situation. Yeah. And, you know, I think the other aspect, Jen, is to be looking at other countries and parental involvement in other countries. You know, I think about when I visited Sweden and when we were speaking to them, first of all, the early years was a gender equity issue in Sweden. It wasn't about the brain and having equal opportunities and all that kind of stuff. No, it was a gender equity issue that women had just as much right to return to work as men did. But, you know, the other thing that they talked about was the deep involvement of parents in the education system. So when we asked about when do you start kids reading, one of the teachers just looked at us and said, you know, as a parent, I would revolt if you started telling me that my under seven-year-old had to learn how to read. They are here to learn how to be empathetic and, and social citizens. And the parents had a huge voice and engagement ongoing with the education of their children. Whereas I think to some degree that we think we send our kids off to school and then school attends to all of the school and education and learning related stuff. Well, we're in a new world. We're in a new world and we have to have a different relationship. The parent has to be part of the learning environment as well for kids to to thrive. We are definitely in a new world, Jean. Uh, You've said that really well. Let's go back to the premise of Love Build Brains. And many of the people that listen to these podcasts and that engage in the Knowledge Hook Signature Leadership Series are senior educators. They may be school principals, they may be running school districts, they may be running ministries or departments of education. 
what advice do you have to them on how they can inspire a culture of love builds brains in either their schools or their school districts or their jurisdictions? So there are educators who immediately come to my mind, and I'm sure they come to yours if I do the provocation that says, think about an educator or a leader that you know who inspires you to be the best that you can be. What are their characteristics? And you'll see that they, I would say, you would see that they are people who don't come into a meeting and have the right answer, but come to know what the right answer for everyone is by the end of the meeting. So that means that there's a humility of we're all learning together. So how is that connected to Love Builds Brains? Well, it really is understanding and thinking about what is my view of the people that I am working with? Do I see myself as a carpenter? I have to get them all in line and do what I need them to do. Or do I see my role predominantly as a gardener? So creating the conditions where we work and thrive as a team because we're all bringing our own unique talents to the endeavor. So that's the big high kind of picture of what does it look like in a leader. I worked closely with uh, Stephen de Groot from uh, Brivia Consulting. And and one of the things that when we are doing uh, work together, he starts off by asking people to think about when was your greatest moment? Think back to when you were just firing on all cylinders. Everything was going well. Everything, you felt that you were in the right place, that you had something to contribute and that what you were doing was valued. So as you think about that situation, and I invite leaders to do this, as you think about that situation, what were the conditions that led to you feeling and acting that way? And what you see is that you felt safe, you felt significant, that you had a sense of belonging and connection, and you felt situated, that you had a purpose, that what you had to bring was important and taking place in the right direction. So if educators and if leaders can think about that, then think about what are the conditions that I need to create so that those I am leading feel safe, significant, and situated. Then they will absolutely be making the connections with people that make them feel their relationship is the active ingredient of brain development and our brains are still developing. And that connection, that sense of belonging and we're in this together. So why is that important? Because when you have that, you release different neurotransmitters in the brain, which neutralize stress hormones. So that learning brain is more active. That's the kind of advice. As I think about educators who I marvel at, they are people who are people people. So I think of my sister-in-law who was with Peel Board at 2000 People High School. She knew everybody, the names of all of their kids. She created an environment where learning was shared. I think of a good colleague who says that we need to be creating in our education system and in our schools pervasive cultures of caring. So Mm. think about those people and what do you need to do to emulate what they did? That's how love builds brains, I'd say. 
I like that concept of creating the conditions because it goes across all levels of the education system. And so if our senior leaders are creating those conditions for our principals in schools and for our teachers, then the teachers can be creating those conditions for students in our classrooms. And at the end of the day, we all walk out being healthy and well and ready to face the world. So it underscores the need for leaders to be thinking not only about student well-being and the double helix of well-being and academic achievement as that double helix, the DNA with relationships binding them, but also that that has to be the well-being of the staff as a top priority because exactly as you say, it affects the education and the achievement and the well-being of the students. Jean, as always, you have given us great advice and lots to think about. On behalf of the listeners, I'd like to thank you for stepping forward and sharing your new book. It will be a great source of inspiration to educators and parents. Thanks so much for being with us today. Thanks, Jen. Thanks to Dr. Jean for joining our podcast today and for sharing her book with us. If you like this podcast, you may be interested in our previous two-part discussion with Dr. Jean, which focuses on the connection between well-being and learning, both for students and for educators. Dr. Jean also joined us for a roundtable with Dr. Mark Brackett from the Yale Center for Emotional Intelligence, where they spoke about searching for well-being in challenging times. You can find this roundtable on the Knowledge Hook Signature Leadership Series portal. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time.